house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that's six degrees of H-word for David Strathairn. Um, actually, that's probably a lie. I'm sure there's several podcasts out there that are, you know. That's true. We can't be, we can't make that claim. We uh, fellow we that uh, sure. Strathairn, uh, you can't work the word Stan into Strathairn. Anyway, moving on. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Chris File, and I'm here, as always, with the previously uh, heard, my shiksa wife, uh, Joe Reed. Uh, how do you feel about Strathairhorns? Strathairhorns. Strathairhorns, because we're, we're, we're air, air horns are a thing, but also we're horny for David Strathairn. Strathairhorns. Mm. Sweaty. I'm not going to say it's not sweaty. We'll put that on the list of potential <laughs> options. Listeners. No uh, bad ideas in a brainstorm. We're all, you know, we're just going to bat some stuff around. We'll see what sticks. You know, let's take it to the team. Let's, let's you know, let's open this meeting. Up. I'm going to run it up the chain. I'm going to see what I'm going to see what I hear back. Yeah. All right. We'll um, uh, listeners, uh, get in our mentions. Uh, get in the menchies. Um, and uh, tell us what the Strathairn stands Stan uh, Thern? I don't like Stan that. Stan That doesn't work. That, do, that like sounds it. like someone whose name is Stan Thern. Stanley Thern. Wait, drag king name extraordinaire. <laughs> Stan Thern. <laughs> you just play very, like, mellow uh, characters. It's like all Avit Brothers numbers. <laughs> oh, boy. I would watch uh, David Strathairn drag king. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow, what an act that would be! What would your big a drag queen be? Uh, comes on stage to do a number with him, and he breaks all of that drag queen's like family plates. <laughs> oh no, not the plates! No, you've made me remember the plates in Nomadland. I'm gonna uh, be sad. Gonna the be way sad. that I gasped that first time I saw that. Scene. I know. Uh, we can take this uh, divergence into David Strathairn, who we talked about last week with the River of Wild. But uh, much to our surprise, uh, yes. we have uh, double booked Strathairn again this week. Uh, he is the narrator of this movie. We have not suddenly turned into a podcast that does a whole bunch of movies by the same artist in a row. Although we've been on, we've come off of our accidental Susan Sarandon marathon, and now we have quite accidentally done two David Strathairn movies in a row. I swear to you, I did not remember that he was in American Pastoral. And yet here we are. How many uh, Strathairns are we at? 
Only these two. So what? there's a lot. I'm there's sure a lot we, had we this could conversation do. Last week, uh, I don't know if we did, but yeah, we had we had uh, been woefully uh, negligent in including David Strathairn in our uh, previous 162 episodes. So now we've really uh, we've come on strong. We have. Uh, Strathairn also not only narrates the movie, but he is the Philip Roth device of this uh, movie novel where yes. like there's essentially in all of Philip Roth or most of Philip Roth's books, uh, like a stand in for the author himself. Often or, like, this character that is. Yes. Nathan uh, Zuckerman. Yeah. Right. Nathan Zuckerman, who David Strathairn plays in this is the sort of standard Philip Roth stand in character who he writes into quite a few of his novels. Um, so yeah, so definitely, and, and from everything that I read, I read a bunch of the reviews for this movie because I've not read the novel, the very, very celebrated novel, American Pastoral, which we'll definitely talk about, uh, that, but all of the reviews, a lot of the reviews that I had read talked about how in the, this film sort of deficits of adaptation from this like celebrated novel to this quite uncelebrated film that that particular character and having and sort of downplaying that character was actually quite a bit of the problem with the movie because that the nature of the sort of framing device in the novel is quite important to how it's perceived and mm. what it's sort of doing. And we'll, we'll definitely get into that. It's also a problem. And I would argue even less, it's less of a problem for this, for the movie I'm going to mention than it is for the movie we're talking about today. But we've also done a Philip Roth adaptation when we did the human stain Indeed. and in the human stain, that character is played by Gary Sinise. Yes. And that character is not utilized enough so it's like it doesn't quite work but like you see the type of like philip roth structure and like influence that this like somewhat passive observer narrator affects on the actual narrative and like how we as the audience receive certain parts of the story whereas like strathairn is basically a framing device in this movie well he's in yes. the first five minutes and the last five minutes essentially and because of that as somebody who's not read the novel i can look at this movie and be like why is he even there at all it makes no mm-hmm. sense and yet i think from people who read the novel they're like no he needs to be in it much much more which i find very interesting i also want to say while we're tallying up uh, numbers of of movies by um, that we've covered by the different cast members in this film. This is, I believe, our first Dakota Fanning movie. She's even though to catch we've up done, to L. we got like how many L's? We got like I four think it's five. four. I think we've done four L Fanning movies. So like we really, really need to try and balance some of those scales with Dakota. The uh, the older Fanning, she was there first, and I kind of feel bad that we've you know. As an older sibling, I I, I feel for her that the there's younger sibling There's less Dakota has... Fanning movies, though. There's less Dakota Fanning movies, and there's certainly less Dakota Fanning movies that made any impression. I think you you look at a lot of her movies, and you're just like that existed. Like you know, I think I feel like we've almost like run the the thing about like this movie doesn't exist into the ground. But like I'm bringing up her filmography right now, and it is 
really striking. So, all right, we're going to do this in order. Very quickly, but yes. So, like, obviously she comes on with uh, I Am Sam. Gets a SAG nomination. Gets a SAG nomination. Man on Fire. She's essentially, like, co-lead with Denzel Washington, or at least, like, very, very uh, prominent in that movie. War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. Um, Charlotte's Web. Like, all of this stuff where she's just, like, she is your premier child actress and she's so self-possessed and she's so you know everybody's really struck by it secret life of bees is sort of that same thing she's the voice of Coraline, and then as she sort of like starts to age up the roles get fewer and they're sort of more particular where like she's in the twilight movies some of them at least she's playing jane who is this very sort of like stoic character who like can cause people to have just like unbearable pain that's sort of her like power and but it's very very obviously different than what she'd been doing but then she's makes this like just movie after movie once she's getting into her sort of like adolescence and older that like people like you and i have probably heard of at least a lot of these but like nobody else has like very good girls her and uh is it elizabeth olsen in that one sure Um, Night Moves, the least, uh, the least heralded Kelly Reichert movie. The, the one that, only like, Kelly Reichert movie I still haven't seen. I mean, you should see it. It's not my favorite Kelly Reichert movie, but you know, it's it, it's not terrible. And um, she's in a movie called Every Secret Thing that I talk about a little bit, just because it's on. I catch it on like late night Showtime a lot. The thing, the one with her and uh, uh-huh. and um, Patty Cakes. What's that actress's name? Danielle oh, McDonald. Patty Cake Dollar Sign. Uh... Not Kelly McDonald. That's a different actress. Danielle McDonald. Danielle McDonald. Yes. Um, and then, and, uh, and, uh, Diane Lane is in it. And it's the one about like the two young girls who, uh, killed a younger child when they were little and they both oh, went God. to jail for it. And you then watch now they're this out on the regular. No, it's just on television a lot. And so I like will like gotcha. be flipping through the channels, and I'll just sort of like notice it, and I'll you know I'll stick with it for like ten minutes just because it's a Dakota Fanning movie, and I like Dakota Fanning. Um, I watched the last half of it one time, and it's it's one of those sort of just like it's it's not about them killing this kid; it's about the aftermath of it. They like you know you, that what, you remember that notorious British uh, real life event where like the two tweens or oh, whatever yes. killed and like a six-year-old and then they went to the jail year that and then all of out. the oscar nominated shorts were about dead children yes. and right. that was one of them yeah and also andrew garfield was in that movie boy a that's basically based on that story too so like this is one of those sort of loosely based on that kind of story except it's a mystery and it's one of them's bad and the other one is good and it's not the one that you think anyway um, she's in a movie called Effie Gray that I always confuse with Charlotte Gray, which is the, uh, um, that's the Blanchett. That's the Blanchett movie. This one is, uh, Emma, Emma Thompson and Dakota Fanning. And it's some sort of, Emma Thompson wrote it. This was, uh, this very unheralded movie for, you know, starring and being, and being written by Emma Thompson. Anyway, she was in that. She was in, um, I mean, American Pastoral kind of. <laughs> is included in that as well. She's in a movie called The Benefactor, which is uh, Richard Gere plays a philanthropist in that movie. It's just a lot of stuff that 
goes direct to cable. Like it's, it's if in the video store era, it would be a lot of like direct to video kind of things. And then she just kind of resurfaces and she's also doing television. She's doing the alienist on uh, TNT and that people like that show. People like that show. Oh yeah. Like I don't want to slate that at all. And then she's I think the re- big one that you're, I mean, not big because like, if you want to talk about a movie that doesn't exist, this, this one has been like scrubbed from the planet, I think. Uh, and people have like kind of forgotten about this controversy. It was oh, the Sundance movie. About. I think it was called Hound Dog. Hound Dog. Yes. Where she plays a child who is like sexually abused. And right. That was I at think least there was some concern that it was like navel gazing, but it yes. turned out that it wasn't as much as people thought it was. But that initial reaction to it kind of poisoned the well, and nobody really wanted yeah. to see it. And yeah, it was a sort of a notorious Sundance movie. And uh, yeah, and that was back in 2007. So that was the one that was like, because a lot of that controversy was, I hate that Hollywood tries to transition child actresses to their adult stage by... Uh, sexualizing them and right. and that was that was sort of the reputation that was put on the hound dog a movie i've not seen so i shouldn't say anything yeah about I, it I mean how many of us have seen it especially but i was that I, again, that I was one like, of those people who was just like after that initial thing i was like well that's not a movie i really want to see and so i didn't yeah and and it sort of went away so i didn't really have to yeah um, and it, it was one of those things where the intention is like talking about uh, abuse but like some people took it as being this thing that it was sexualizing this child actor and right you know right so uh, when she sort of resurfaces in films a couple years ago she's squeaky from and once upon a time in hollywood which is not a major role but she's sort of the focal point of a scene and like in that way that quentin tarantino can bring an actor who you've maybe forgotten about for a while. It's interesting that like she was probably off the map in major Hollywood films for as long or maybe even longer than Travolta was off the map before he did Pulp Fiction. You know what I mean? It's probably mm-hmm. that same kind of a timeline. And so like obviously Tarantino is famous for obviously John Travolta, Pam Greer, um, any number of the actors who he brought around in films like uh, the Kill Bill movies or Hateful Eight or anything like that. Um, it seemed briefly that like, oh, Dakota Fanning is maybe going to get the the Tarantino treatment from that. But increasingly, obviously, he's working with like major Hollywood actors. So like the Dakota Fannings now get these sort of featured supporting roles rather than you know, Vincent Vega or Jackie Brown. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, now she just has like, the one scene, and I think she's really good in the one she scene. She is really good in like, that one scene. She's very memorable a, in that movie. It's a cameo, you know? Right, right. But Like, I think Mar- uh, Margaret Qualley um, and uh, somewhat Julia Butters got yes. the attention that we maybe expected yes. from a casting announcement of Dakota Fanning plays Squeaky From, you know? Yes, exactly. We didn't so, realize it was just a cameo. And we're still uh, awaiting her and Elle together in uh, Melanie Laurent's The Nightingale, which is about two sisters in France during World War II, based on a novel. I know Um, a lot of people that love that book, too, so I'll be very, very curious about that movie. 
I'm rooting for it, if only Absolutely. for the 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 Fanning sisters. And then she's been attached to a film version of the Bell Jar for a while. I feel like, and who knows if that's going to actually get made? Who knows if that's going to actually do anything for her? I'm I'm always very skeptical of these kind of long in development adaptations of kind of like literary canon. Uh, books i mean american pastoral sort of falls into that it's later canon but it's like falls into that problem of how do you how do you how are you impressive with this how how does a bell jar movie really wow you when the book is so ensconced in american culture do you know what i mean Mm mm-hmm well, and like its literary status is like so high. Yeah. What can you, what, truly, what can you do can with you the material? Because, like, I think, and like, we'll get into this with American Pastor, Pastoral, where it's just like, it's one of those things where something has such a high literary regard that it almost seems like people uh-huh. are afraid to do anything but the most like basic one to one type of adaptation that's so boring like yes and uh this kind of uh unwillingness to understand that what works in prose and like style in terms of like a narrative flow character intrigue does not it's you can't do a one-to-one transfer there's very few options that we would maybe consider like traditional straightforward adaptations that right. are very interesting. Well, and so American Pastoral is published in 1997. It is, again, like rapturously received as like one of Philip Roth's greatest novels. It wins the Pulitzer Prize, right? It does. It wins the Pulitzer Prize. And is like, because it comes at the very end of the 1990s, its reputation is in full bloom when it comes time for best of the century lists, these sort Mm -hmm. of like the essential novels of the 20th century. So it ends up on a lot of those lists, very high on a lot of, I feel like it was like second to beloved on one particularly prominent. Yeah. The two big ones that I at least remember around this time where we're doing these massive retrospective uh, lists. uh, One of them was the New York times book review. That's the one that it was a runner up with like three other books, including blood Meridian to uh, Tony Morrison's Beloved. The other one, Time Magazine did 100 Greatest English Language Novels on there that I don't think was ranked, but I like see. that one got a lot of attention and it was on there because that, I believe, is the list where Watchmen showed up. Uh, and people right. were like, see, what a great list because we are acknowledging different right. types of literature. We are not snobs. Look right. at us come to the masses. Yes. <laughs> Um, that's very interesting. But I feel like it has definitely settled in as, like, the Philip Roth novel. This is a man whose novels and and works of, uh, of literature go back as far as the 60s, obviously. And his 
and has like continued to go like the plot against America, which was just recently adapted into, I would say, a pretty great HBO miniseries, actually. And we'll talk about sort of successful versus unsuccessful adaptations of his work. That has to be the most successful adaptation of Philip Roth. That isn't the Matthew Reese episode of Girls, (laughs) (laughs) which is basically like a a riff on uh, Philip Roth. But yeah, and so you've got stuff like, obviously, like Portnoy's Complaint and... um, Goodbye Columbus and things like that. And, but I feel like when American Pastoral comes along, because it is this kind of summary, not summary, but just sort of like this is going to be like the novel where Philip Roth, one of the great novelists of the 20th century, comments on America, um, America in the American century, right? To, to go from like the end of the World War II generation through the turmoil of the 1960s and sort of what is it saying about America? So like that very unsurprisingly then becomes the kind of signature uh, Philip Roth novel. So like the expectations on this adaptation were really, really high and people had been trying to make it for years. Most specifically there was a, there was a film attempted with Philip Noyce attached to direct and this version of the film was almost philip noise philip noise dropped out like less than a year before filming and then it was announced that ewan mcgregor um would right. also be directing to right so it's like this cast was already attached to philip noise and mcgregor had wanted to play this role for a long time although at one point it was going to be paul bettany opposite jennifer connelly and evan rachel wood in the Evan Rachel Wood in the Dakota Fanning role makes so much sense because she would end up playing a lot of roles like this, this sort of mm-hmm. like version of like, oh God, our daughter, what, where have, where have we gone wrong kind of a thing? In obviously 13 is a much more modern version of it, but I'm also thinking of like her role in Mildred Pierce, where she's just like so incredibly antagonistic to uh, her mother in that movie. She's sensational in that. Uh- I mean, even like across the universe, which is yeah. a um, right. like another '60s type of thing. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk about how this movie handles the '60s. I think that's probably the the big thing about this movie where it where it attempts to succeed and where it does not. Um, but yes, anyway, so so McGregor sort of comes on late in the game to sort of bring this one across the finish line essentially and seemingly to be like well i want to play this role and if i want to play this role i'm going to have to direct it so it's his directorial debut and seemingly his last directorial effort as well yeah we'll definitely get get into into it. it yeah uh, we should maybe uh, get into the plot description before we keep digging we should. too deep we should. into this episode. Because yes. the Ewan McGregor thing is definitely something we're going to have to unpack with what works and doesn't work in this movie. But yes. guys, we are uh, here talking about American Pastoral, directed by none other than Ewan McGregor, written by John Romano, based on the novel by Philip Roth. John Romano... Also, he's done a lot of television, but also the screenwriter of the Lincoln Lawyer film. Yes. I mean, the two great American novels. Yes, absolutely. American Pastoral and the Lincoln Lawyer. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely Um, right. 
can't imagine anybody else who could, you know, adapt to yes. this novel. Yeah. Uh, starring Ewan McGregor, Jennifer Connelly, Dakota Fanning, David Strathairn, Peter Riegert, uh, Uzo Aduba, Samantha Mathis shows up, uh, Valerie sure Curry as, like, uh, Lil' Kim in an Andrea McArdle wig. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I mean, seriously. Yeah, not the and Andrea McArdle wig, you're so right. Like, she has God. a fucking Andrea McArdle wig while she's, like talking about her genitalia it's walking weird. walking red scare episode uh valerie curry's character in this film <laughs> like <laughs> good golly yeah you could do a drag mega mix to like how many licks to her monologue um in the hotel room in this movie oh my God. um and then of course the great molly parker i love um, molly parker for a few scenes as maybe the worst therapist on film we'll talk about it because like this is very emblematic of the way a lot of i will say male writers write therapists especially in this sort of era where it's Mm -hmm. like they write about them as like this woman's trying to destroy my family by pointing out like all the things that i'm doing wrong like i wish my therapist wouldn't put these ideas in my wife's head and is like actively destructive in what she's like it's it's shade queen molly parker in this movie like she reads jennifer Connolly the house down in this thing it's uh it's a lot uh, the movie world premiered at TIFF, um, cratered, we will talk about it, yeah. and then uh, theoretically opened October 21st, 2016, the same weekend as Moonlight, the Best Picture winner. Schrodinger's uh, opening, where it did it, did it open, did it never open, Where who, who could possibly know? It like, played it- a max of 70 theaters. Yeah. Like, reading the info on this movie, it's like, it opened wider. I was like, wider! Yeah. Er but... is doing a lot of work there. Yeah. yeah. Um, Joseph, are yes. you ready to give our lovely listeners a 60-second plot description of American Pastoral? Absolutely. All right, then your 60-second plot description starts now. All right, David Strathairn plays uh, Philip Roth stand-in Nathan Zuckerman, who goes to his... Uh, high school reunion all excited to hear about the Swede who was the great sort of golden boy of his high school uh, played by Ewan McGregor the Swede is called that because although he is Jewish he is very fair haired and athletic and and sort of the golden boy of his school he marries the local beauty queen Shiksa beauty queen played by Jennifer Connelly they have a daughter named Mary Mary has a terrible stutter throughout her childhood and adolescence she becomes radicalized by the Vietnam War she ends up getting caught up with radicals and she is accused of planting a bomb at a post office that kills a man. So she goes on the run. So Ewan McGregor spends the rest of the movie frantically and and fruitlessly searching for his daughter and is disillusioned as he goes along by the the disintegration of American society. And he finally finds her and she's in Skid Row and she's doing terribly. And he ends up dying a sad and broken man. Yeah. And uh, she like he sees her a few times, then never sees her again, but keeps like visiting, this showing one. up her hov- outside her hovel or whatever, standing Staring out there, into the getting progressively older, ramshackle, synecdoche, New Yorking his way through the end of this movie, and then she shows up at his funeral. This movie really made me think about how much Charlie Kaufman was 
sort of leaning into a Philip Roth kind of a thing with Synecdoche, New York, with the with the stuff with the Philip Seymour Hoffman and his daughter in that one, and sort of how he sort of grows old and sad. I don't know. This movie made me That's think about that a little bit. It makes sense, right, that Charlie Kaufman yeah. would have an affinity for these sort of uh, Philip Roth protagonists. I feel like they truck in some some of the same subject matter, obviously with Kaufman sort of taking it in his own particular directions. But I feel like if I read more Philip Roth, I would probably see a lot more shades of, of Charlie Kaufman stuff in there. Just a thought, just an assumption. I could be you wrong. Know, just a word experiment. Follow it down the trail. So... Um, the casting of Ewan McGregor is interesting in this movie because obviously the thing about the Swede is that he's Jewish, but he looks like, again, the fair-haired American boy. And I think that's a big part of that character. So casting Ewan McGregor would seem on the surface to be smart because he does look so, I don't know, just like smiling golden boy. But... I think my thing with you and McGregor often is I find those postures very empty. And I find that unless you are giving him, unless it's something like Moulin Rouge, where the whole idea is that he like believes in love and art and truth in a way that feels very corny, like intentionally corny. Like that's part of that's baked into the idea of it. I think that works. I think otherwise, I find his persona so often to feel very fake and phony, and I can't ever really connect to it. He's another one of these actors that has this, like, really tricky relationship with earnestness because like it's so integral to some of his best work like Moulin Rouge or um, Down With Love. And I think... When he's doing something that subverts it, where he's playing somebody who is maybe, you know, not the good person or who is uh, a little um, on the dangerous side, like a velvet gold mine. Right. Yes. It prevents that in his performance style. But when he is playing someone who maybe we're supposed to root for, who um, even if they're a complicated character, you know... The, right. The screen persona is less complicated like this. He's bad. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's kind of the case here and a lot of it is that sort of error of ad, uh, of adaptation. We talked to, I talked about it at the beginning about how from reading the reviews the sense was that in the novel the Nathan Zuckerman character is not only hearing about the Swede story. Because the thing is, he runs into the Swede's younger brother, who in the movie is played by, um, remind me, Rupert Evans. Rupert Evans, who is not so recognizable as a figure that, like, you couldn't have just cast an older actor to play him in the flash-forward scenes. Like, I don't understand why we need Rupert Evans with, like, really bad old-age makeup. The old-age makeup in this movie, we need to free... Jennifer Connelly yeah. from the evil grips of old age makeup. It's true. Well, we need to free Jennifer Connelly from most of this movie. We'll, this movie we'll is very, very it. bad we'll for her. It. We'll definitely get into it. But the idea that Nathan Zuckerman runs into uh, Jerry Lavov, the uh, the younger brother, at this reunion. He's been out of the country for like decades, so he doesn't really know 
what's happened to the Swede. And Jerry is like, my brother has just recently died and I'm going to tell you what happened to him. And so the whole movie then is this sort of Zuckerman being told about what happened to the Swede. But in the novel, it's that Zuckerman is hearing the story from the younger brother, but also sort of extrapolating the story from what he assumes from what his assumptions are about the Swede, from his sort of visions of this, again, all-American golden boy. And so the novel becomes about the kind of conflict between the American ideal that Zuckerman sort of has in his head for the Swede and the the darker reality of it. And it's, again, this is why a lot of people called the novel unadaptable, because so much of it lies in these sort of the the cracks in between that and the gulfs in between that and the way that Roth's prose sort of has ideas that sort of flow through there and, and speaks to sort of America and the American character through that. And this movie doesn't engage in that at all. This, in this movie, it is straight up a framing device and a really limp one at that. And it becomes like, I think even, what people think are great about the novel in terms of like perception versus narrative of the American ideal. Like there are so many movies that unpack that specifically in like Vietnam era stories that it's just like, if you have this really paltry adaptation, like this movie is, it's so boring and familiar and like, yes, This movie really made me think about, is there a way to do a movie not only set in the 1960s, but about the sort of tumult of the 1960s? Is there a way to do it right? Because my my usual complaints are that, like, this is just sort of like a travel log of the greatest hits of the 60s. And you have, you know, the... The contractually obligated Buffalo Springfield needle drop... All right, we're going to get into that in half a second because I have a game for you. Um, but like, yeah, right. The Buffalo Springfield, the newsreel footage, the, you know, the monk setting himself on fire outside the Capitol and all of the like, again, like the greatest hits sort of approach to that. And I always feel like, well, that's the wrong way to do it because it feels so impersonal. It feels like you're watching like a not really good CNN retrospective you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. and yet i think something like this which does engage in some of that but also in digging into one particular story of just this dakota fanning character as one teen who is radicalized and and sort of becomes a uh I guess, ter- I mean, terrorist, right? She's bombing a post office. So yeah. um, in just drilling down so tightly to that, my feeling watching the movie is like, I need more context. You know, I need more. I need I need more of a feeling of like where the country is at this time, because all- otherwise it's just her yelling at her father about ever or like yelling at Lyndon Johnson on the television. And it becomes like really just didactic in that way. And like, you don't get a sense of like the madness. And it's funny that this movie comes out in 2016, just before 
uh, Trump is elected. And we're now watching it now in 2021 after the Trump administration, but after and sort of... And it feels of, like now is the time that we should be... Feels like now, it, feels like, it feels like now it's more... Uh, we would understand fe- <laughs> how to contextualize uh, this I guess. It's not like... It doesn't make the movie any better, but I feel like it almost speaks to this moment more than it spoke to a moment in early fall of 2016. Mm-hmm. But even still, I'm like... Not, I, it doesn't do it well, but yes. Right. But again, so like, I was just like, so do, are you too specific? Are you too drilled down or are you too wide lens? And I'm just like, is there a, is there a good way to do a film that is about the 60s? I mean, I think that this movie's approach is to contextualize it within the family, at least. Right. And all of that just feels like, why am I watching this? Like, the, the like, kind of sexual awakening that the daughter goes through where it's like awkwardness and she's like it's like why why do oh we the have part to where younger she, dakota fanning makes a pass at her own father like philip roth is nasty why? philip roth you nasty like, <laughs> that's when i texted you that when she like put pulled down her little like strap at her dress and it's like kiss me like you kiss mommy and i'm like philip roth like you had to bring an electro complex this. into this like you really had to do that like well, but like also with Jennifer Connelly's character, it it does try to have these things that it's like transitional generations, right? Where it feels like the two parent figures are a generation that's caught between how their fam their parents, you know, taught them to uh re- like live their life through some type of american ideal but then a younger generation is going through protests and uh you know free love and those type of things where it's like i think it there's something about that here but like the way that the movie does it is so flat-footed and like we kind don't see of, enough of what Mary's doing outside of her yelling at her parents. You know what I mean? We don't see what her right. life is. We don't see she any is of a her construct. And right. I think she's like, such a construct. Yes. It, it if it does the other characters better, it partly works that she's a construct. Like she, maybe I agree. she should be to say the point of the, that is trying to make. But I like agree. the whole thing about how Jennifer Connelly gets uh plastic surgery it feels like it's taking us through like a diorama of like superficial concerns by the way she gets plastic surgery to her face and the movie's uh, solution for that is not like doing something with makeup to her face they literally give her like a sharp bob. (laughs) Yeah right. (laughs) That's that's plastic surgery. But the other thing that this movie does that I that I really can't stand is it externalizes its psychology to the point of having a psychologist character, the Molly Parker character sort of like lay out the themes of the thing. Like it's bad enough when the psychologist is talking to Ewan McGregor and Jennifer Connelly and being like your daughter, her stutter is a reaction to the fact that she can't live up to the standards of having a beauty queen mother and an all-American father, and she can't handle the American ideal that you two represent. And it's like, oh, so we're just sort of laying out the themes of the novel via this psychologist character. That's bad enough. But then when the Dakota Fanning daughter also starts parroting the stuff, which 
I guess is supposed to be that she's sort of an indication that she's kind of parroting her own psychologist because like we find out later that the psychologist was harboring her for a while and that kind of thing. But like, Mm -hmm. it's mostly just like, stop saying the themes of your novel out loud. Like, stop, stop this, stop this right now. Like, let us internalize this. Let us interpret this. Stop just like, cause it feels so false and phony. What rebellious daughter is going to be like, it's going to be that hung up on like mom was a beauty queen. Yada, yada, yada. Especially when you don't ever see Jennifer Connelly's character, like particularly talking about that aspect of her life very much. You don't see enough. You don't see enough of their, of, Connolly and McGregor's relationship as it develops as it is. There's one really actually good scene with her and Peter Regert where they're like haggling over how they're going to raise their theoretical kid, Jewish versus uh, versus Catholic or whatever. And that's kind of an interesting scene, but you don't see any of the parts where like McGregor and Connolly get together or I don't know. I don't know. I love it's just Peter like Peter Regert. I just have to say, iconic um, pickle guy from cinema. Yes, uh, crossing Delancey. We love movies with pickle guys. Wait. So before before we get too far away, because we I did put a pin in uh, the Buffalo Springfield thing, and it was so surprising to me. I kind of gasped when it happened because we've gotten to a point <laughs> where that song is so universally accepted as cliched that I was like. Have we gone around the bend of it being such a cliche for so long that nobody would want to use it that now we can use it again? Absolutely not. It no. should be illegal at no, this point. I, you are I not agree. allowed to use that song to convey the 60s. It you just stop it. Stop it. So, I wanted to play a short little round of alter egos because I oh, love this game. And what I've done is I've done a game of alter egos where all of the films that are answers to this oh are films that have used Buffalo Springfields for what it's worth. No. On their yes. Yes. So it's a short one. It's only nine films. But are you are you in? Oh, God. I I mean, they're all going to take place in the 60s. So I think this may not be as difficult as I'm afraid it is. But let's do it. Let's get into it. All right. So Alter Egos is the game where I will name three movie characters. Chris then has to figure out what actors played all those characters and then what film all of those actors are in together. So it's three characters from various movies. And Chris has to figure out who they're played by and what film they're all in together. All right. Starting off, Lumiere, Emma Darwin, and Cherie Curry. <laughs> okay, uh, Lumiere, is that Stanley Tucci? It's not Stanley Tucci. Oh, okay. So it's, um. oh my god, it's right on the tip of my tongue. Who is the Lumiere in the animated one? It is, um, 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 oh god, that's embarrassing. What? Give me the other characters. I'll come back to it. All right. Um, sorry, I clicked away. Emma Darwin and Cherie Curry. Okay. Emma Darwin. Right. It's a. It's Sarah Gadden. No. What are you thinking of? Fuck. I was thinking of a dangerous method. No, that's not Darwin. Idiot. No, Darwin. Yeah, like, uh, is that... Ju- oh, this is... Uh, it's a... Uh, oh, that's right. Stanley Tucci is not Lumiere. It's 
you and McGregor were talking about American Pastoral. We're talking about American Pastoral. Because yes. you're also talking about Creation, which is a Jennifer Connelly, Paul Bettany joint where he plays Darwin. Yes. And then um, Cherie Curry is Dakota Fanning. In The Runaways, yes. All right, yes. next one. Greg Fokker, Sherlock Holmes, and Dewey Finn. Um, Sherlock Holmes is uh, Robert Downey Jr. Um, Greg Fokker is Ben Stiller. This is Tropic Thunder. This is Tropic Thunder. Who's Dewey Finn? Uh, great question. <laughs> it's Jack Black in School of Rock. Oh, okay. All right, next one. Joe Fox, Aunt May, and Nathan Zuckerman. Uh, Joe Fox is um, Tom Hanks in You've Got Mail. Aunt May is Sally Field in (laughs) The Amazing Spider-Man. This is Forrest Gump. Right. Who's Nathan Zuckerman? You kind of already spoiled this a little Uh, bit. Gary Sinise in The Human Stain. In The Human Stain, as you have mentioned. All right. I thought that was interesting as I was going through. I was like, what am I going to do for Gary Sinise? Oh, oh, that fits. All right. Next one. Captain Antonio Corelli, Reverend Ernst Toller, and The Joker. Uh, okay, so uh, Captain Corelli is famously Nicolas Cage. The Bella um, Bambina himself. Yes. The the most Bella Bambino. Right. Um, and then The Joker is either Jack Nicholson, Jared Leto... Or um, uh, uh, Heath Ledger, obviously, um, or Joaquin Phoenix. I'm going to take a wild leap. Is it Jared Leto? Is this uh, Lord of War? It is Andrew Nichols' Lord of War. Reverend Ernst Toller, want to take a stab? That is Ethan Hawke in First Reformed. Very good. Very good. I've never seen Lord of War. I was sort of, I was worried that you were going to be adrift, but you are better at this than me. All right. Dr. Jonathan Crane, Zeus, and Mildred Loving. Um, Mildred Loving has to be um, Ruth Nega. Yep. Is Zeus Anthony Hopkins? No. What are you thinking of? Uh, isn't he Zeus in, Th- in Thor? No, he's Odin in Thor. Okay. Um, different, different, uh, different cultural mythology. Isn't he Zeus and something else? <laughs> I don't think so, but our listeners can correct me if I'm wrong. It's not Anthony Hopkins. What was the first one? Dr. Jonathan Crane. Oh, this. I know that character name. That's not... Um, hmm. I can say alias Scarecrow. Oh, uh, that is Killian Murphy. Yes, from Batman Begins, and also, I believe, The Dark Knight Rises. Okay, so who has played Zeus? You gave me Killian Murphy first, so Killian Murphy has to be, like, top build. Is this Sunshine, which I still have to see? It's not Sunshine. Oh, you should see Sunshine. You should. But no, it's not. Is it Breakfast on Pluto? It is Breakfast on Pluto, his Which I Golden Globe-nominated role. Uh, Zeus, in this case, is Liam Neeson from the Clash slash Wrath of the Titans movies. Mm-hmm. All right, next one. Ray Barone, Motormouth Maybell, and Chichi Rodriguez. Uh, Chichi Rodriguez is um, John Leguizamo? 
in Tu Wang Fu. Yes. Uh, um, did you say Mama Morton? No, you said Motormouth Maybell, which is um, Queen Latifah in yes. Hairspray. Yes. What the hell movie are they in together? First what was one the first is character? Ray Ray Barone. Ugh, I don't know if I know that one. Television. Ray uh, Barone. Okay. Is this some famous show that I have uh, never seen? It was a very long-running show. The first name should help unlock it for you, even if you've never seen the show, which you probably have never Ray. seen. Ray. So is it... Um... What's a longer form of that name? Ray. Oh, everybody loves... Oh, uh, so... Um... What's his goddamn name? Uh... <laughs> He is also named Ray. Yeah, what is. is he the lead of that Queen Latifah is in? This isn't like Taxi. No. What the hell? Um, think animated. Ray Romano. Yes, think animated. Oh. I'll give it what? to you if you get the franchise. I'm not going to make you get the specific movie. Ice Age? Ice Age The Meltdown. I okay. couldn't think of a good Dennis Leary name, so I uh so I, I went to Queen Latifah instead. Alright. Next one. Madeline Martha McKenzie, Malin <laughs> Eatonton, and Sherry Ann Cabot. This is also a Sally Field movie. Because Malin. Malin from Steel Magnolias. Yes. She wants to hit something and she wants to hit it hard. She sure does. Um, okay. Um, uh, I completely, uh, forget what the other ones were. Madeline Martha McKenzie and Sherry Ann Cabot. Madeline Martha McKenzie, I do know, and it's right there, and I'm going to get someone yelling at me, probably like my sister. Um, Imagine that I am Laura Dern and I'm saying Madeline instead of Madeline. Oh! Uh, Reese. Reese Witherspoon. In... Um, uh, Big Little Lies. Big Little Lies, yes. Um, is this Legally Blonde 2? It is Legally Blonde 2. I'm going to make you give the subtitle, though. Uh, Armed and Fabulous? Um. <laughs> that is miscongeniality to you. I know. All all second movies should be... Should be called Armed, and Fabulous. Armed and Fabulous? Yes, they should. Legally Blonde 2, Red, White, and Blonde. Okay. That's a good game I should do is movie subtitles. I'm going to jot that like down that. for my next movie trivia. Sherry Ann Cabot, want to take a stab? I don't know. I never saw Legally Blonde 2, Red, White, and Blonde. Um, I just know that Sally Field is in it. Who else is in that movie? Sherry Ann Cabot, does the phrase bend and snap uh, help oh, you? Oh, it's uh, Jennifer Coolidge. Jennifer Coolidge in I Best in Show is Sherry Ann ah, Cabot. Yes. yes. All right, last two. Lillian Hellman, Howard Cosell, and Tom Buchanan. Uh, Howard Cosell is John Voight. Yes. Um, Tom Buchanan is either Bruce Dern or um, Joel Edgerton. I'm going to guess that it's Bruce Dern. Correct. Is this coming home? It is. first one is Jane Fonda. Yes, Lillian Hellman is Jane Fonda in... in... Julia! Julia, very good. People talk shit about that movie, but I like it a it's lot. It's a good movie. I think it's a good, good movie. movie. All right, last one. Billy Flynn, Dr. Otto Octavius, and Jeannie Schmidt. 
Dr. Otto Octavius is Alfred Molina. Uh, Billy Flynn is Richard Gere. Yes, in respectively Spider-Man 2 and Chicago. And also uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. Um, Third one is Genie. (laughs) No Anal. I said no way home. I thought you Isn't said that what no it's called? Anal. <laughs> yes. That is what the new Spider-Man is called. Just to you, disabuse You have been waiting for it to become Spider-Man No Homo. Well, it just it's that's a that's a sequel to Spider-Man Anal. Is just Spider-Man No Anal and uh <laughs> covers the game. Um Genie Schmidt. Oh, I think I know this. Concentrate on the last name there. Schmidt, right. Oh, is this, um, uh, I can think of Hedvig Schmidt from Hedvig and the Angry Inch. But no. But I don't think the mom is going to be someone you're giving me. No. Would it help if I said an alternate char- character name for this actress is French Ticket Agent? <laughs> okay. French ticket agent in perhaps a movie that I am obsessed with around the holidays. Oh, Hope Davis. There you go. From <laughs> Home Alone. From Home Alone. Hope Davis. Her French dialect in Home Alone should be taught in every public school. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There is no way. I'm sorry. We can only <laughs> we can only offer you a tickets later on in the week. Please um, don't drop her doing that. Please. Who is Jeannie Schmidt then if it's Hope Davis? Hope Davis, Jeannie Schmidt. Schmidt. About Schmidt. Yes. All right. Okay. Any idea who those three actors are in and what movie those three actors are in? Gear, Molina, Hope, Hope Davis. I've never seen this movie. It did have early Oscar buzz. Is this um, because of Richard Gere? Is it the hoax? It's the hoax. Very I haven't good. seen this either. Right. Nobody does. Nobody has. Maybe we should do that movie to talk about Richard Gere. Yeah. There's a Maybe. lot of Richard Gere movies we could do. That's definitely one of them. Um, but yes. All right. Good job with Alter Egos for What It's Worth edition. All of those movies had uh, Buffalo Springfield in them. Can we just talk about another huge thing that is a problem with this movie? And it is that... Speak on it. All due respect to Ewan McGregor... He is not a filmmaker. <laughs> like, no. a part of the problem with this movie, and, like, I realize, like, not it's not always interesting to talk about aesthetics, but, like, aesthetics can make, or, or not to, like, be too, you know, broad about it, but it can make or break a movie, but, yeah. like, aesthetics are important. Like, yes. he doesn't know where to place a camera. It's very, very visually boring. There's so little, like, interest yeah. in the way that... Yeah. Scenes are cut and structured. Uh, the way we move from scene to scene, there's like no control over the narrative. There's no like impact of this is what a scene, you know, the, like what is it, what is the like story beats? What's the structure? It doesn't exist. Like there's certain scenes in the movie, like especially the one that jumps out to me in the way that he directs actors. Um, the scene where that this felt most true where they're like, she's making burgers and then they start an argument in the kitchen about Lyndon Johnson. It felt like you were watching 
a rehearsal and like a first rehearsal. Yeah. And that's what so many of the very dialogue heavy scenes felt like. I, you know, just in terms of having a control over characterization, uh, tempo of scenes like there are so many characters in this movie that you walk out of this movie feeling like well i didn't know them at all like this the jennifer connelly character is so adrift in this movie and it's because you don't there's no attempt made by the camera to bring you into her space Mm -hmm. she's so much failure on both fronts in that you can't like he doesn't know how to frame and he also doesn't know how to bring out yes you know character development you know right, right. he doesn't know and how then to so when she has a scene where she's like stripped naked but with her pageant sash in the glove factory sort of gone crazy and it's like Sounds like my friday night <laughs> um by the time you get to that it has no impact beyond just you feeling like vaguely embarrassed for the actors. Like I spent so much of this movie being like vaguely embarrassed for the actors, but it's because there's no attempt to humanize her at all, mm-hmm. at all. And I don't think that could, that, I, that can't be the intention of the story because there's, there's to what end to what, I'm mean, not to, mm-hmm. you know, Maya Rudolph as Dionne Warwick of it, but like to what end would you keep that character at such an arm's length. It makes no sense. There's a real lack of understanding on a scene-to-scene basis of what information we in the audience are supposed to take out of that scene, what we are supposed to, uh, you know, interpret from a character. Yeah. Uh, truly on a scene-to-scene basis. I don't think Ewan McGregor has any real understanding of what even, like, the emotion of a scene is the only scene truly that I think worked in this movie for like, I got out of it what I am supposed to because of what is on the page is that like final father daughter conversation scene. Um, you know, the last time that he sees his daughter, right. which like is probably also the, I mean, it's, complex because you know we in the audience are finally understanding all of the things that she's gone through and all of that but also it's like it's the most obvious on its face emotion you know like it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand or maybe a therapist to understand what we're supposed to learn from that scene and how we're supposed to feel about it um uh a thing that's not Ewan McGregor or Philip Roth's fault, but a thing that I wanted to ask you uh, in those scenes where we reconnect with Dakota Fanning and she's wearing the mask over her face. Did it set you on edge as much as it did me that it wasn't covering her nose because now we live in COVID times <laughs> and I'm just like, just cover your nose with your mask. Um, I mean, uh, I didn't think of it. Did uh, you not? It's all I could think of, Chris. It's all I could think of. I can't imagine. I mean, at this point, like, nothing was pulling me into the movie. Except eh. I will say, I do think in the back third of this movie, I think Dakota Fanning is pretty decent. I think if it was a better movie, once they stopped shackling her with the stutter, been great. Yeah, I think I think the requirement to 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 do the stutter and to stutter as harshly as she does in this movie, it really, it weighs her down. 
I feel Again, like. it felt like watching a first rehearsal. Yes. The and thing- it's none of the actor's fault. I mean, like, Ewan McGregor is an actor in the movie, so it is his fault. Like, I don't think anybody's as bad as an actor in this movie as Ewan McGregor is, but, like... Right. The thing that drove me crazy in the back half when we reconnect with Dakota Fanning's character is she's now become, she's sort of been broken by the counterculture, right? And she's now become this woman who sort of wanders around like a ghost in her life. And she wears a mask because she's, she's adopted this sort of extreme, she says, Indian philosophy where she, she walks, she treads lightly on the ground so as to not uh, harm any living thing there she wears a mask so that she does not harm the molecules in the air with her breath and she just doesn't bathe because she doesn't want to harm the molecules of water and it's like it's this very to me kind of sneering portrait of like 60s hippie um consciousness do you know what oh, i mean yeah it absolutely could have just i think it's trying to be empathic or embracing of her because of the things she's gone through. But I think it just as easily could have been a like, you know, look how crazy or as much of an idiot as she is. Like it's definitely doing some of that. Like, I think the movie is trying to, it's making her a little bit of a freak. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way that feels like it's like, it's the butt of a joke in a way. And this movie definitely doesn't let, the Ewan McGregor character off either. It doesn't let the sort of greatest generation characters uh, off of the hook either. This de- There's definitely sort of wide sweeping critique, but like the way that it depicts the sort of the youthful radicals in this movie, like the Valerie Curry character is essentially just a Bond villain in, as you said, an Andrea McCardle wig, um, who is just She's like... like a Bond villain from late night cinemax spouting red scare topics like it's like it's a whole i I swear to god it's so it's every it's every bad thought you ever had had about somebody who is like you know was was anti-war in the 60s or whatever and you have this like this younger generation who essentially exists just to like say mean shit to their parents you know what i mean yeah like those scenes uh, this was one of the things that i was like this is maybe a little bit more relevant five years after it was made because it felt very okay boomer yes it felt it there it felt very okay boomer and i mean ironically being said by characters who are of the boomer generation you know what i mean right well i mean and maybe that's a more interesting story to tell now. But is to it was tell that a story type of annoying okay boomer thing that it's just like it's the perspective that just like hates and thinks that like you know the younger generation are the demons and are just right. like these like rhetoric spouting monsters and they're not actual people. Exactly. Like, but maybe it's a more interesting story to tell now this idea of the boomers when they were that age essentially okay boomering their parents who were from the generation before them you know what i mean like that's at least something right. i think you could be dig a into more interesting like a yeah. perspective or dialogue to have instead it just turns these people into these gross characters it's in so the way unpleasant that, like this dialogue it's... mimics you know yeah. i would rather watch 110 minutes of samantha mathis just eviscerating Ewan McGregor and Jennifer Connelly, as she does for one whole scene. She's really good. She is... Our second Samantha Mathis. 
Oh, wait, what was our other one? Wait, is Samantha Mathis not in How to Make an American Quilt? No, she is. You're right. Right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, our second Samantha Mathis. I love Samantha Mathis. She, I mean, I don't know. I'm sure she has terrible politics or something. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I anybody who like I don't know. I don't trust anybody who's gotten old. Um, and then Uzo Adubo in the most fucking thankless character in this thankless house movie. Oh, Uzo Aduba as the dignified black woman. Like I it's mean. so thin of a characterization, and I love her. And she imbues as much as she can into this woman who you know gets one scene where she sort of dresses down a, a soldier but that's it that's it not a great movie it's not a I great want to movie. talk about the tiff reception of this movie yes because let's. like we've talked about movies that like go to festivals don't do well or they bomb and then they like have a conceivably well they have a conceivable like noticed release yes when we say this movie cratered at tiff like ceased to exist the the vast majority of people who saw this movie saw it at that festival and like it's kind of the poster child to me of like movies that are like prominently placed at a festival i looked it up this movie debuted at the primo slot on the first friday night so it like couldn't have been more visible yeah and immediately is scrubbed off the face of the earth. I also looked it up. The TIFF cut is about 20 minutes longer. So in the month before the movie was released, they went and cut some stuff out. I'm curious what that would be. I know in like, I was trying to pay attention to like where it felt like things were weirdly stitched together. Molly Parker's final scene has this weird fade to black that does not seem like it belongs there. Yeah. Yes. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is the type of movie where they right. just cut stuff out of the end to right. like wrap it up. Right. Did you see it at that festival? No. I think you mentioned, like, it didn't have one of those inauspicious, like, late in the festival premieres or whatever. It did premiere on the first Friday night, but that first Friday night's pretty crowded, so I'm... You know what's funny is I can probably bring up what I saw. So the Friday night movies screen for press. It's conceivable that you, because it's a crowded night, you saw something else. And then by that night, you heard to run away screaming. Right. So the Friday premieres uh, screen the morning of, right? They don't screen the morning after, or do they? Uh, I don't remember. I can't remember either. Well, that Friday was... Arrival, Nocturnal Animals, A Monster Calls. That's what I watched that uh, morning. And then Saturday morning, the day after, I saw the Anne Hathaway movie Colossal. But that was also the day that I was running down to the hotel by the water to interview Sandra Oh and Anne Heche. So that Saturday, I was sort of all over. But I I just remember that even by the time, even by that time, Nobody was really super excited for American Pastoral. And I feel like the buzz was already not great. And I don't know where that was coming from. But there was not a whole ton of... I think there, you know, I definitely know people who saw it that night. But the fact that it wasn't good wasn't some, like, big surprise. 
yeah. for whatever reason. So, yes, I did and not. And then see the movie it. goes on to make a half a million dollars in never more than seventy theaters. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the lowest grossing movies we've ever done. It's so fascinating to me that this opens the same, opens limited in the same weekend that the eventual best picture winner does. And it's also, this is a Lionsgate movie and they had Hacksaw Ridge and La La Land. So they definitely had the second place movie too. So it's like, this is a good year for Lionsgate. Movie, it, yeah. Well, right. Yeah. It's, even though this is an entirely forgotten movie, it yes. is like right there in the crosshairs of, you know, what the ultimate like best picture narrative would become. Yeah. Well, 2016, I feel like that year really, really got formed by those fall festivals in a way that like Absolutely. a lot of years do, but like this one especially, where all of a sudden you emerged from Telluride, Venice, Toronto, and like La La Land frontrunner. Moonlight was already getting that like little engine that could uh, buzz and things like Arrival and Lion and even like Hidden Figures by showing that little bit of footage at Toronto, like the buzz on that really kicked in. Yeah, so, they had like a they had a reel and they did a concert, right? Because the movie wasn't complete. Right. And that's how you knew that like, oh, they mean business with this movie because like, even though it's not finished, they are, they will be damned if they're not going to get in on the fall festival action. I'm trying. So the only really late breaking movies, Hacksaw Ridge didn't get seen at the festivals. I don't think fences. I don't definitely think it didn't. did any festivals and I, it didn't, I think it was just that that movie like became well liked. I don't want to talk about Hacksaw Ridge. Um, no, I know fences was the other late, late arrival of that pe- best picture cast fences i feel like was finished late there was some talk where it might even be pushed to the next year but ultimately it wasn't but like moonlight arrival la la land lion and then even though manchester by the sea was a sundance movie it played the fall festivals as well so that plus the little bit of hidden figures and then hell or high water had already opened so that's your best picture lineup. 2016 is a great best picture lineup. Like, with the exception of Hacksaw Ridge, which I don't like, everything else is good. That's a good, that's a really good best picture lineup. I'm not high on Lion. Oh, I think But Lion's like, I good. understand why other people are. I liked it a lot. I've only seen it the one time, but I liked it a lot. Um, and I think there's like, I think the great stuff there. Moonlight Arrival is great. And I think I love Manchester by the Sea. I really, really do like La La Land for as much as I have my criticisms of it. I really like, I know you don't like Hell or High Water, but I really do. And I really like Fences. I think it's a good, I don't know. I think it's a very good Best Picture lineup. Yeah, it's a pretty good lineup. If only American Pastoral could have cracked it. Absolutely not. (laughs) Did it get anything? I'm looking at its little awards tab. real. No, it's just like this played a festival. Yeah. Ewan McGregor got a Best International Actor award for Train Spotting 2, Beauty and the Beast, and American Pastoral. That is a. Cursed. I don't know wow. what kind of. I don't know what kind of Santa Barbara Film Festival bullshit Germany was doing that year, but like, yipes. What? Like, what? Like, three witches cauldron ingredients <laughs> of three movies 
could oh you my possibly God. come up? Yeah, that is a, a that is a like curse. A more like vicious hex. That is a curse of a of some of some extraction. Yeah. Um but we talked about Molly Parker a little bit. Can we talk about the fact that like she should have gotten two Oscar nominations in the last three or four years, and obviously they were never going to happen, but she's Madeline, so Madeline and And Pieces of a Woman. I hate Pieces of a Woman. I do I mean, too, I do but she's, she's the, the good part of in that movie. Yes. But... I that's the that's my thing. I don't like that movie at all. And I don't not like Vanessa Kirby, but I think the best performance is Molly Parker. Yeah, I think Vanessa Kirby is fine. I don't think she's, you know, anywhere near an Oscar nomination to me, but like yeah. Molly Parker Molly Parker in the little bit she has to do in that movie is the best. She rules. It's wild. It's not wild to me that Ellen Burstyn was the one who got buzz because like that's a very showy character and it's Ellen fucking Burstyn, so like I get it. But like Molly Parker is the supporting performance there for sure. Like she's Molly so- Parker is in Jockey this season and what is Jockey? Jockey's the Clifton Collins Jr. movie from Sundance. From Sundance, I did not see that. Yeah, Sony Classics is pushing it. Is I, it good? I think it's fine. I think he's fine. I liked Molly Parker in it. Um, I I don't. I I'm skeptical that it will um, go very far. There is another Peter Pan movie coming out that she is in. Oh my god! Oh wait, David Lowry is directing it, so now I have to. I now I have to be open to it. <sighs> Because it's going to be good. Mad. I no, do but... not want to see another Peter Pan. But you know it's going to be it's good. David Lowry, so I have to. It's going to be good. It's it's he's going to ah he's going to kill that. It's going to be so good. But yes, I agree with you. I am not looking forward to seeing. Uh, she's playing Mrs. Darling, and that opposite Ellen Tudyk is Mr. Darling. Wait, okay, this cast: Jude Law as Captain Hook, Jim Gaffigan as Smee. Molly Parker, Alan Tudyk, Yara Shahidi from um, Blackish is Tinkerbell. I'm gonna like this movie. God damn it, David Lowry, he's so good. Why are you so? You good? know what? If if doing another uh, Disney movie, if he also like you know does his own thing like he did with Beat yeah. Dragon, yeah. you know I could I'll, I'll be fine. But like if it keeps him making whatever the hell he wants to make. Fine. Yes, I am with you. I am definitely with we you. We maybe have to do Old Man and the Gun soon. We really, really should. We've talked about David Lowry a bunch lately. <sighs> Alas. Okay. She's also in a movie with Halle Berry called The Mothership that is a sci-fi adventure drama. Is this the one with the moon smashing into Earth? I don't know. But that's that's cool. like the Roland Emmerich with uh, Holly Berry coming soon. It looks no, so stupid. I'm it's so not excited. Roland Emmerich. It's um, Matt Sharman. Who mm. I don't know what Matt Sharman. I love that like we have these episodes, and all of a sudden I'm just like tumbling down a IMDb rabbit hole. This is his directorial debut. Anyway, Halle Berry, Molly Parker. I'm already kind of in. It's gonna be great. Yeah, it is. Gonna be We're great. into that. All right. Any what else? What else about American Pastoral? Can we even say like it's? I we talked about Peter Rieger. He's the he's the fun one. Oh, let's talk about Indignation a little bit because like in the same year that like American Pastoral completely yeah. bombs out, the whole thing is the novel was unfilmable. Why do people try with Philip Roth? He's just like it's you can't get it off of the page, and yet. James Seamus that same year was just like, do-do-do-do-do, gonna have a really good Philip Roth adaptation. Indignation is 
really solid. It's really Those solid. Those scenes with Tracy Letts are incredible. Yes. Tracy Letts rules in that movie. I really like Logan Lerman. Um, you mentioned Sarah Gadden in relation to something else, but um, that's Sarah Gadden in that movie, right? Yes. I always get her confused. There's another blonde actress I always get her confused with, which sounds sexist, and I'm sorry, but it's true. Sarah Gadden plays that character yes. a lot. A lot. Yes. A lot. A it's lot. kind of what keeps me at a little bit of an arm's length with Sarah Gadden, where I'm just like, oh, oh again. Oh, again, you're going to play that character. I think she is best playing that character when Cronenberg sure. casts her. Sure. Because like, he is very keyed in to what is, I think, strange or off about her as a performer in a way that I find her interesting in his she's well we talked about a dangerous method so yes there is definitely something strange about her sort of comportment and that kind of it's very like icy blonde peculiarity and where it's like outwardly this sort of like Barbie doll persona and yet like there's something peculiar about her so yes indignation doesn't get it doesn't get awards attention at all it's a sundance movie i think it's released maybe in the summer that year but like it's i don't remember it being released during the actual awards season well that was part of why probably well and also like that's not i mean this you know a story of like a middle-class, you know, Jewish man sort of, like, trying to make his way in academia is, and sort of, like, you know, encountering things about America. You know what I mean? Like, this movie does all of that better. It's very good. But, like, I'm not surprised that this didn't, like, sort of hook into the zeitgeist at all uh, that year. And, which is too bad. Again, Logan Lerman's great. And Tracy Letts is great. I definitely rescind my earlier comments. Uh, Indignation is the best uh, Philip Roth adaptation I've ever seen. It's only second to me to Plot Against America, but it's it's almost it's tough for me to compare apples and oranges of a miniseries versus a film. A miniseries is really able to and I haven't explored space, and you haven't seen that. That was it was released before the pandemic i'm trying to remember when it premiered before yeah was it definitely. did it well it, but it also it aired week to week so i think it's final episodes let me see yeah it's final episodes aired it was march and, and april the, yeah so it was like very very pandemic. early very early pandemic i don't think i ended up watching it until a few months after that so it was i was a little farther into the pandemic but like so for right. me this isn't a, so much a pandemic movie as it is a 2020 election movie because, like, the degree right. to which that miniseries scared the absolute shit out of me because it's all about what if we elected a Nazi sympathizer who played the populist hero. This is why I didn't watch it. It's I very stressful. Like, no. And it's literally just like, we've talked about how like the miniseries years and years from on HBO from 2019. Also ended why up, I was like, can't do this. Can't which was this so right stressful now. and ended up like being so prophetic of the ways that I would feel during the, the pandemic, especially the part of pandemic that happened before the election. But like so much of the plot against America is literally just like, if we if we just do the very American thing of electing 
an American hero as a president, this is how it could go so terribly wrong to the point where we are like descending into fascist authoritarian regime. And it's just like, and it, but it's so well done and it's so incredibly perceptive and it's so, I mean, the performances are great. Zoe Kazan rules in that. Like it's, it's the best thing I've ever seen her do. And so that to me is the epitome of, and it's David Simon. I mean, come on. Um, That's the epitome of Philip Roth on screen, but like indignation is up there. Indignation is really, really good. It's certainly better than The Humbling, which I did see at my very first TIFF, one of the very first TIFF movies that I saw, because I was sort of seduced by Al Pacino and Greta Gerwig. Like, I think the Greta Gerwig of it more than anything. And I sort of talked myself into the, like, well, Barry Levinson made good movies at some point in his career. And it's it's offensively bad. Also, what's his name? Charles Grodin is in it. And that was during a very sort of like, that was the like the late career last gasp resurgence for Charles Grodin, where he was really good in um, the Noah Baumbach movie that I didn't mm-hmm. like um, while we're young. And, but yeah, I think the Greta Gerwig of it all really like brought me to the humbling. And it's like, He's Pacino's an aging actor and she's the young woman who he ends up in a relationship with, but she ends up being a nightmare because she's a young woman. And it's like, Oh, I hate it. Oh, I hate it so much. Um, Oh, it was so bad. And it was literally like so the you're second thing. Me there is a Philip Roth adaptation that hates women more than American pastoral does. Oh yeah. Yes, Ooh. it does. I think American pastoral, uh, it's hatred expresses itself in negligence more so than anything else and the humbling is because it's more modern it's just like ah these women today they're so you know i don't know it made me so mad yeah humbling humbling bad (laughs) indignation bad yeah um do you want to move on to the imdb game why don't we why don't you explain what the IMDb game is? Yeah. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress and try and guess the top four titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits, we mentioned that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue, and if that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. IMDb game right there. All How right. do you feel about this, Joe? How are you feeling today? Would you like, are you feeling you want to uh, guess first? Are you feeling you would like to uh, make me guess first? <laughs> I'll guess first. That sounds fun. All right, cool. Uh, then for you, uh, I have one of the uh, potential uh, original cast members in one of the many iterations of this movie that almost happened. Uh, not Miss Dakota Fanning, but Miss Evan Rachel Wood. Uh, there is one television. Evan Rachel Wood, one television is probably True Blood. Incorrect. All right. Oh, Westworld. I'm dumb. Yes. Justice for Mildred Pierce, but it is Westworld. All right. All right. So one strike, and I have Westworld. So three other movies. Um, is one of them 13? 13. All right. Two other 
films. All right, Evan Rachel Wood. Evan Rachel Wood, who I would often for a while get confused. Not get confused, but like she and Jenna Malone were getting a lot of the same roles for a while. Um, And Kristen Stewart kind of too. I don't think this is it, but I kind of want to get the years because this is going to give me some trouble. So I'm going to say the upside of anger. Incorrect. Your years are 2007 and 2009. All right. She is one of the three daughters in the upside of anger, along with Carrie Russell and Alicia Witt. Wait, are there four daughters? Yes, because Erica Christensen. Christensen. It's four daughters. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, Another movie we eventually have to do. 2007, 2009. All right, 2007-2009, Evan Rachel Wood. So, it's a few years after 13. 2007-2009, neither one of those are running with scissors. Um, huh. Is one of these, like, like, glaringly obvious and I'm just forgetting? I would say one of these is glaringly obvious. All right. All right. Maybe because we mentioned it this episode. Oh god damn it. Um <laughs> so bad. We were saying Evan Rachel Wood uh you know played a similar role. It was conceivable that she would have played this role because she'd done a lot of movies like this, perhaps movies set during uh adjacent eras. Wait, Mildred Pierce? No. I was going to say that's television, my friend. Um Similar time, like the Vietnam War. Oh, Across the Universe. Across the Universe. Yeah. So that's 2007. 2009. (sighs) What's going on in 2009? What's happening? What's going on in her life? Um, So this this is less known than... This is before Mildred Pierce. Right. And bef- well, uh, True Blood. It looks like she started in 2010 on the show. Yeah, the show started before her, but she picked up in either the maybe the third season. It's the year after the wrestler. She is great in. Right, I always forget that she's in that. Is this a drama? No. Is it a comedy? Uh, theoretically, yes, but I remember people being like, "This one sucks." <laughs> okay. Um, like a broad comedy or sort of a thinky comedy? Um, I mean, I guess you would say thinky because of whose comedy it is. Right. This movie makes uh, one of uh, makes Evan Rachel Wood one of those actors that gets yelled at for why did you work with this person? Oh, Woody Allen. This is um, this is the one with Larry David. Yes. Uh, and Patricia Clarkson. I will give that to you. The title is Whatever, whatever works. works. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Whatever Basically, works. people liked Patricia Clarkson in this and hated the movie. Right. But again, both Patricia Clarkson and Evan Rachel Wood. This is that was that Woody Allen script that like had been sitting on a shelf for like a decade, and you could really tell because it really is like, even for Woody Allen, I'm like these are some retrograde, uh, retrograde thoughts about women. <laughs> anyway, um. God, that's a bummer that that's one of her known for. I Just, know. Justice for almost anything else in her filmography. 
I'm somebody who doesn't like uh, Across the Universe, and I don't really know if that movie does much for her. Except she does have an incredible voice. It does um, make sense that that's one of her known for, though. Yeah, like, it that, does. That movie has a huge fan base. But, yeah. like, and she's the lead in it and, and all this sort of stuff. All right. For you, Chris, we just a second ago talked about The Plot Against America and its fantastic cast. One of whom in that cast uh, ends up marrying Winona Ryder's character, and he is played by Mr. John Turturro. I knew you were going to give me Turturro. <laughs> um, as soon as you said Plot Against America. Okay. Yeah. Um, the thing is, how much Coen Brothers is going to be on there? I am going to guess um, Lebowski. No, not Lebowski. Okay. One strong. Um Barton Fink. Correct. There we go. Hmm. Do the right thing? Incorrect. Fuck. So that's your second strike. Your missing films are 1990, 2000, and 2013. So they're pretty spread Again, up. I'm still on this track of how many Coens are going to be there. 1990 is the year before Barton Fink is that Miller's Crossing. Miller's Crossing. Very good. Okay. What were the other years? 2000 and 2013. Okay. 2000, 2013. 2000. 2000 is Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Is it, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It is, Oh Brother, Where Three Art Thou? Three damn Coens. Three damn what? Coens. And no... You know what? I'm going to spoil this. No Spike Lees. <laughs> damn. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. Um, 2013, though, isn't that Intolerable Cruelty? No. Intolerable Cruelty is like, oh, four? No. Yeah, it's earlier than that. But, okay, so what co I just want it to his four to be four Coens yeah. at this point. What movie did they do in twenty thirteen? Uh that's no. No. Did they do one in I don't think it's Coens. It's not Coens. I'm just not, gonna give okay. that to you. This one is tough. It was three Coens, where which were I knew were going to be easier to to get. This one is tough. I've never seen this. I would w- be willing to bet that you have never seen this. What are some of the things that helps goose a movie onto someone's IMDb known for? Um, <laughs> big box office. That's sure, but that's not the case in this. I'm I'm guessing. Um. Uh, search engine optimization, awards wins, lots of uh photos on IMDb where that person is tagged. Um, you haven't hit it yet. Um, like how involved would you uh, would you be in a movie to sort of to really have it show up, have a have a lesser known movie show up on your IMDb? What level of involvement? I mean, probably it's... Is it like a movie that he directed or produced? Yes. Or both? (laughs) Yes. So it's like, it is, again, another search engine optimization thing. Um, 
I could not tell you a movie that he directed that isn't Romance and Cigarettes. Right, I was going to say, it's Romance and Cigarettes. All right, so it was a 2013 movie. It, uh, again, I haven't seen it. I'm now certain that you've not seen it. Woody Allen is apparently in it. Oh, as God, is... sorry, listeners. We're pulling out double Woody Allen. Listen to the cast name. list on this thing. John Turturro, Woody Allen, Sharon Stone, Sofia Vergara, Vanessa Paradis... Liev Schreiber, Michael Badalucco, Bob Balaban, Max Casella. I've absolutely not seen this. The the description is uh, <laughs> Fioravante, who is the John, John Turturro character, decides to become a professional Don Juan as a way of making money to help his cash-strapped friend Murray. Murray is Woody Allen, as you would imagine. With Murray acting as his manager, the duo quickly finds themselves caught up in the cross-currents of love and money. This sounds terrible absolutely terrible it is called fading gigolo the the expression on my face i'm going to describe the, the poster posture, to you i'm going to describe the poster to my you spine right now. the poster is this kind of ombre of like rose shades of rose right and onto that is a literally just like pulled from the movie shot of Woody Allen and John Turturro sort of walking side by side in overcoats on one imagines a street of New York, but they're like, they're just sort of, it's just the two of them on the poster in the background is a, is a silhouette of the Brooklyn bridge and then a silhouette of the New York city skyline. And the, the title fading gigolo is written in like, it says fading and then it's gigolo and then slightly lighter font, gigolo, gigolo, gigolo. So it's like, it's like whispering gigolo, gigolo because the font is fading 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 it's so bad it's so incredibly incredibly bad nobody saw this movie big surprise i'm pissed (laughs) i would be pissed too i would be pissed if i was any other john Turturro movie including intolerable cruelty that you guessed that he's not even in i would be pissed if i was that movie Brutal. Well, I haven't seen it's all World cruelty, so it was easy for me to. You're get. fine. That's my least favorite Cohen's movie. I know there's a lot of people who like stick up for that one as like it's better than it. Than... No, it's not. It's not good. Anyway, anyway, that's it. I think that is our episode. If you guys want more, this had Oscar Buzz. You can check us out on Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore Buzz. Joe tell our <laughs> lovely listeners where they can find more of you whispering the word gigolo sure uh you can find me on twitter at joe reed reed spelled r-e-i-d you can find me on letterboxd as joe reed reed spelled the same way and i am on twitter and letterboxd at chris v file that's f-e-i-l uh we would also like to thank kyle cummings for his fantastic artwork and dave gonzalez and gavin Mevius for their technical guidance please remember to rate like and review us on apple uh podcasts uh spotify google play stitcher wherever else you get those podcasts five star review in particular really helps us out with apple podcast visibility so please uh write us a nice review instead of returning to that abandoned house where you last saw us (laughs) that's all for this week we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye.